So marriage is a mystery. That's what we're talking about during the month of August, and it's a mystery at a couple levels. It's a mystery because there are moments when a husband and wife are out together on a date, sun has begun to set, great food in front of you, you're looking across the table and you have this thought, I can't believe that I married you. And in that moment, marriage is beautiful. However, there are other moments where it's not so sunny out, it's kind of dark, and words are flying back and forth, and there's arguments and clashes of wills that are happening, and you'd be tempted to look at your spouse and say, I can't believe I married you. Marriage has both glorious moments and hard and hurtful moments. Marriage is something that's important, and marriage is that which is worth fighting for and thinking about. Marriage is God's plan from the very beginning. It is more than an institution. It's meant to be a revelation. It's designed to say something about God to the world. So today we're talking about the roles of a husband and wife. Next week we're going to talk about sexual intimacy. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about foundations. What's the basis of marriage? And in case you weren't here or if you're just joining us for the first week, let me just bring you up to speed. We said last week from the book of Genesis that marriage, first and foremost, is God's idea. That God designed marriage between a husband and a, a, husband and a wife and a man and a woman in order to say something powerful about himself in the context of the created order. So marriage is God's idea. Secondly, marriage is good. That marriage isn't the only relationship on earth, but it is a unique relationship, a relationship like none other. And third, we said last week that marriage is special. That in order to understand what marriage is, you need to know the concept of one flesh. It captures both the oneness, the harmony, the unity in every way that's to be reflected in that earthly union that then is to say something about the triune Godhead. Now we're talking about marriage and just from the outset let me just say if you're not married this sermon series is still for you. I want to be clear that if you're single that it's not as though you're living second class, a second class life. On the contrary, Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, elevates singleness as a unique role in life, a unique opportunity even to honor the Lord and to live on mission. And you're going to see some things in the context of this message today that I, I think will apply to you generally as a Christian, although you're going to hear how they're specifically to be applied in a unique way in the context of marriage. Additionally, I just want to be sensitive to those of you who've had really bad experiences with marriage. Maybe you lived in a home where you saw a marriage that was just falling apart, so you've got really no model in front of you, or, or maybe you're recovering from a bad marriage, or maybe you're in a bad marriage and you're just like, I could really use some hope. So wherever you are, sort of in your perspective on this subject, I think there's some things in the Bible today that are helpful. Today we're addressing this question. So how exactly does marriage work? We're talking about roles, specifically from Ephesians 5, regarding husband and wives, regarding how do we apply biblical principles in our lives, and what I want you to know is that there are lessons for people who are married, 
and for people who are single in the context of this sermon. Here's what we're going to do from the outset. I want us just to agree, I want you to go on record, that you're going to listen for you. <laughs> Tracking with me already, all right, good. I haven't, I haven't even finished the sentence, and you already know where I'm going. You're going to listen for you, and you're not going to listen for your spouse. Can we agree to do that? Just shake your head, say yes. If you're married, lean over to your spouse and say, sweetheart, I'm going to listen for me, not for you. All right, say it, do it right now. Come on, do it, I'm telling you. I'm not asking, I'm saying do it, all right? All right, so here, here's the other thing. If you're single, I want you to listen because I'm going to say some things to husbands and wives that, frankly, you could learn from as to how you could apply biblical principles that are specifically implied, applied in marriage, that, you, that are applied generally to all Christians. Okay? Also, husbands, when I'm talking to wives, rather than privately going, mm-hmm, I want you to instead listen for what that command could instruct you in regards to how you're to live. And wives, same thing. While I'm talking to husbands, I don't want you thinking, please God, please God, please God, help them listen. Instead, what I want you to do is ask God, what about this do I need to receive and hear as a way to think about what it means to be a good Christian? Because what I'm gonna suggest today is that there are concepts that are behind the scenes as it relates to marriage that are specifically applied in marriage, but those concepts, those ideas, those principles, they apply to all Christians. So we're going to talk about three words today. We're going to talk about the gospel, about love, and about submission. So gospel, love, and submission, and all three of those words apply to every Christian. They just happen to be uniquely applied in the context of marriage for husbands and for wives. And so what I want you to see is how does the gospel how does love and how does the biblical idea of submission not only apply to all Christians, but also apply in the context of marriage? So let's start with the gospel. I'm starting with the gospel because it undergirds everything that is said in this text. It serves as the, the backdrop, if you will, of what Paul communicates in fact, when you look at the text, what I want you to do is to see some things that you might miss because you may be so focused on wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And what you'll miss is the important phrase that happens after the word as. If you don't get what's after the word as, you won't understand how to do the command. You won't understand what Paul is referring to. So here's some examples. Notice this, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Secondly, regards to husbands, a husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Notice, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then again, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the point that I'm trying to make here is this, that when you understand the reference point, it changes everything. Because I need to be honest with you, these four weeks about marriage, I hope they're going to be helpful, but they're not going to be sufficient. 
There are dynamics in the context of your relationship, nuances and contours and challenges, really complicated questions that a four-week series isn't going to answer. You're going to have to figure out how to work out this particular sermon series in a new way in your life. And here's the hope and the confidence that when you have the reference point of the gospel, you have a better chance to know how to live it out. You have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be Jesus to my spouse today? What does it mean to be Christ? How ought to be Christ-like? How can I honor Jesus in this situation? And church, that has so many layers, so many nuances. That's what the body of Christ, that's what fellowship and, and common relationships with one another, that's what a good friend or counseling could perhaps help, is to figure out how do we apply this? But if you don't get that first thing right, you won't understand anything about marriage. So we have to start with the gospel to understand It's in the background. In the same way that if I say something is as smooth as silk or as dark as night or as hard as granite, if you don't understand the thing behind the thing, you won't understand what is meant. Both marriage in general and the role of husbands and wives is designed to be premised on one's understanding of the gospel. In fact, this is how Paul starts the entire chapter. Here's what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So when you get the gospel right, when you understand what's in the backdrop, you then have hope to be able to apply the things that Paul is leaning into. So let's start with, so what do we mean by the gospel? What does it mean Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Well, around here we often talk about the gospel as four things. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, and Christ is my life. And what happens to us throughout the course of a week is our commitment and our understanding of that reality tends to leak. We start to hear other gospels in the culture and in our own hearts, and we need to be reminded what is the gospel. Here it is, God is holy, which means this, that God is the creator of the universe, he is sinless, his glory is the most beautiful thing in the universe, and God sets the rules. God was the one who decided what was right and what was wrong, because he's creator, he has the right to do that, and violating his holiness is eternally dangerous. We start from there, and then the Bible tells us, not only is God holy, but I am not. So you go into marriage with a fundamental assumption that I am not a perfect person. The problem with our humanity is our rebellion against God. All of us, according to Romans, have sinned. We have fallen short of God's glory. We are, as the Bible describes us, walking dead people. We're alive, but spiritually we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses, and we walk in them as evidence of our deadness. We live apart from God, and the Bible tells us in Ephesians we have no hope in ourselves. We are strutting our way towards spiritual and eternal death, fully convinced we're right until Jesus comes and rescues us. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that Christians are people who understand God's holy, I'm not, and third, Jesus saved me. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, enters into the mess of our world. He leaves the intimate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He embraces the limitations of humanity. He humbles himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. 
and 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, and I love it because I wouldn't believe it's in the Bible. I wouldn't believe that God would say it if it wasn't in the very copy of God's word where it says this, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So here is the Son of God who becomes the very antithesis of righteousness by taking upon us, or taking upon himself our sins, and in so doing becomes not only the full sacrifice, but becomes the way of making other people righteous. So the effect is that we have been saved by grace through faith. The result is that it's not our doing, it's a gift of God, and as a result, no one can boast. Why? Because everything we have is a gift from God. So we start with this premise. I'm a sinner, I was running away from God, Jesus rescued me, and then the effect is that Christ is now my life. In other words, I didn't just become a Christian so I could know where I go when I die. Being a Christ follower means that now Christ is my life right now. That we are a new people. We're his workmanship created in order to show the world what Jesus is like, such that we're now filled with the spirit of Christ. We bear the fruit of the spirit, such that everything that I am as a Christian, everything I think, is, everything that I do, is now transformed by the work of Jesus in me. And my goal in life is so that I could become like Jesus. The goal is that God can use every circumstance in order to form me and frame me into the image and likeness of Jesus so that when Paul says, be imitators of God, that's what he means. Now listen, if you don't understand that and if you don't love what I just said, if you're not a Christian, then you're trying to engage in a relationship with two broken people without any understanding of what that brokenness means or what it is to try and fix that and you're trying to do it on your own, which is one of the reasons why sometimes marriage issues create greater opportunities for you to think through about where you're headed spiritually. Because what happens is you've got two sinful people in the context of a home, and suddenly you come to the realization that this isn't working, and you come to the brokenness of realizing, I can't do this. And some of you, this, ser this sermon series may be the means by which you actually cross a line and say, you know what, my marriage was the least of my problems. I got a God problem and a soul problem, and I need Jesus to fix that. You see, marriage only works when we understand the backdrop of marriage is the gospel. Marriage isn't the only relationship where the gospel is applied. The gospel has to be applied all over the place. But it's essential that it's applied in the context of marriage. If you're a single person, you have to apply the gospel in all of your relationships. If you're divorced or a single mom <clears throat> or a single dad, you have to continually apply the gospel. All Christians apply the gospel in all sorts of relationships, but it must be especially applied in the most intimate of all relationships, the relationship between a husband and a wife. Otherwise, what motivates you to die to self? Marriage just becomes a contractual arrangement where I'm in this because of what you give me, what you provide to me. And when that dries up or that changes or you think that that person isn't leveling the scales, marriage crumbles. But if, on the other hand, you know that you were rescued from yourself, if you know you've been granted incredible mercy, then you are more inclined to ask for forgiveness and to keep asking for forgiveness. 
I can think of moments, a few of them in my lifetime, when I was having an argument with my wife, Sarah, and I thought in my heart of hearts, I'm not asking for forgiveness first this time. I asked for forgiveness first the last 100 times. So I'm not going to be godly until my wife is godly. That's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Especially when you've not been loved by Jesus that way. And what wakes you up out of that? Doing the math? No. Some sort of self-interest? That's never going to work. There's no self-interest in dying to self and asking for forgiveness and, and being a right kind of person. The only motivation to do that is if there's another reality that's motivating your heart. If there's something else that drives you other than your desire for your own happiness and fulfillment. And that is a relationship with Jesus. And that's why it makes all the difference in the world. So listen to me. If your relationship with Jesus is in trouble, it won't be long until your marriage is in trouble. Because a bad relationship with Christ will result in not being willing to die to self, not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. On the other hand, there's great hope. Because how, do you, how are you going to maintain a good marriage over 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years it's by regularly figuring out how do we apply Christ's likeness in our lives through every season of life. So we have to apply the gospel. All right, so gospel, here's the second word. It's the word love. Look at verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, wait a minute, some of you are like, whoa, 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 you just skipped verses 22 to 24. I did. We're going to come back to him, I promise. But I did it on purpose, and here's why. Two reasons. Number one, as a man, as a husband, as a pastor, I want to lead with my responsibility first. So before I apply the Bible to our wives, I, I want you to hear how the Bible should be applied to us men. The second reason why I'm doing this is just to acknowledge that oftentimes, in my experience, teaching on marriage tends to lean really heavily on this idea of submission, both because of where it's in the text and for some other reasons, that the tone of the sermon seems to be all about submission. So we're going to get there, but I want to start with what it means for husbands to love their wives. So notice that the Bible commands love. So what is love? Love is more than just an emotion. It has to be something that you do. So, for instance, if I say to you, be sad right now. It's a little hard to, to conjure that up. But if I say, hey, sit up. Or if I say, stop looking at your phone right now. That's right, you. Stop, stop looking at your phone right now. Look at me. Look at me right now. All right, so then suddenly now you're, you're, you, there's something that you can do, something tangible, something active. And what Paul is doing here is calling husbands to act in a way that reflects what loving kindness and compassion should look like. They're commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This command flows out of the backdrop of Christ's love for the church. So what exactly does that love look like? Let me give you three things. It looks like this. I'll show you this in the text. It looks like sacrificial, intentional care. 
That's what it means to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrificial, intentional care. And brothers, what I want you to do is to think through, of those three, which of those do you need to take some steps in? Is it sacrificial, the way in which you love her in a way that fits with the sacrifice of Christ? Or is it intentional, that you're not sort of just kind of flowing through life, but you're, you're, you're on target or care the way in which you nourish and cherish her? So look at the text. Here's what it says. It says, he gave himself up for her. That's the sacrificial piece, that husbands are to be known for their Christ-like willingness to sacrifice. Intentional, we find this in verses 26 and 27, where it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What the Bible is saying here is that Jesus is intentional in the way that he loves the church because he has an aim for her, a target for her that relates to her flourishing and becoming everything that God has intended for her to be. And so he says that husbands ought to love their wives that way. And then to care for them, verse 28 says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So in the same way that you care for yourself, that you should nourish and to cherish your wife. So brothers, can I just ask you, does your wife feel your sacrificial intentional care? And if you say to me, I don't know, my pushback to you would be, then ask her. I'll give you an assignment. Ask your wife, in what context do you feel nourished and cared for? And by the way, when you asked that 15 years ago, that doesn't count now 15 years later. You have to ask it again and again because there are different seasons of life where nourishing and cherishing changes based upon different seasons and maybe perhaps number of children in the home or even age and life circumstances. First Peter tells us that we're to live with our wives in an understanding way, that you're continually growing in your understanding of what that intentional and sacrificial care looks like. Like six years ago, I, I took a personality test and I was super helped by it, and I came home and I asked my wife to take a personality test as well. And again, it, it's not um, a biblical thing, but it was helpful. And when I saw her test, it was a really funny moment because when she looked at it, she laughed and I panicked. <laughs> and the reason I panicked is because for years prior to our marriage, particular ways that God had wired Sarah, I actually thought that when she grows up and gets more spiritual and more mature, she'll stop thinking this way and start thinking like me. <laughs> and when I saw that this is actually how God had wired her, I took my hands off trying to change those things that weren't sinful but they just weren't like me. And as a result of that, tried to help her to flourish in those areas. And I'm telling you, from that moment on, our marriage was perfect. <laughs> Verse 25. <laughs> of course it wasn't perfect, but you know what? It was better because I'm living with her in an understanding way, trying to understand her struggles, her burdens, her care, sacrificially, intentionally care for her. And by the way, this idea of sacrificial, intentional care, this isn't just the only way that leadership is supposed to show up like this. This is the way that all leadership under the banner of Christ is supposed to be. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. He said, he called his disciples to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their leadership over it, 
over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, the gravitational pull of our culture is to take a position of authority and then get what you, what you, what you deserve. Like, aha, now I've got people to serve me in the context of my home. Now I've got a wife that can do what I want. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you would be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there's no way you'd understand that unless you know what it means for Jesus to have given his life as a ransom for you. So brothers, the question you've got to be regularly asking yourself is this, how am I evidencing my commitment to Christ's likeness in the context of my home? God knew what you needed when he gave you a wife with all of her strengths and all of her weaknesses. And she, God knew that there were particular aspects of who you are that God wanted to sand off of you. And he's going to use your wife to be able to do that. And praise God, you're going to look more like Jesus because of that tension. And the question is, are you going to respond to that by getting angry with her and frustrated with the circumstances? Or are you going to embrace the reality of what it means to be a servant leader? And friends, if you're a Christian, that's how you should respond. This is just the evident application of it in the context of marriage. It may be the most intense application, but it's not the only application. I would hope whether you're male or female, married or single, that whenever God gives you a position where you're asked to lead, that you use it to help other people flourish, not to make yourself great, or to somehow now use other people in order to make your life what you've always dreamed it to be. I mean, let's be honest. Too often, male headship and leadership, in its sinful expression, has marginalized and oppressed women. Abuse may be used way too much in your opinion, but it doesn't mean abuse doesn't happen. It's like the word racism. You may think racism is used way too much in our culture. Maybe it is, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. What do we mean by abuse? Let me give you a list. I asked our counseling staff to help me. Brothers, I want you to feel just the warning of these words. Biblical leadership doesn't look like verbal threats, manipulation through guilt, name-calling and put-downs, using scripture to coerce, using fear to intimidate or isolating your wife from others or other abusive actions. I mean, think of it. Can you imagine Jesus like this? So, brother, when you're feeling tension of the, the, the reality of your marriage and you want your wife to change and you're not able, for whatever reason, to persuade her in the normal sort of tones, you've got to ask yourself at that moment, what would Jesus do if he were here? You see, biblical leadership looks like that at all levels, and it's especially true for the ways in which husbands provide leadership for their families and their wives. So husbands, how well are you expressing your servant leadership in the context of your marriage? When it comes to your desires, your schedule, your energy, your plans, your spending, your leisure, your ideas, your words, what do those things really say about sacrificial, intentional care. And can I just encourage you to think of this series as an opportunity to take one of those areas and all of us have things we need to grow in. And say, so you know what? In that space, on that word, I gotta take some steps. Because none of us have arrived as Christians and none of us have arrived in the context of our marriages. 
So God has designed marriage to work as husbands love and lead their wives like Christ loved the church. So there's the gospel, love, third word, submission. The challenge with the word submission is it doesn't feel very positive. Like love feels positive. Submission immediately feels negative. But here's the thing you need to know about the word submission. The Bible throughout the New Testament in particular commands Christians to be submissive. Now let's start in the text with what it says in Ephesians 5. In regards to wives, it says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So wives, submission is a gift that you give to your husband and you submit to him. You're not called to submit to all men. It's a gift you give to him as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what does the word submit mean? In the original language, it literally means to arrange under. But the idea is if you go like this, it almost feels like one's less in value because of that. And part of that is just kind of a wrong thinking in our Western and modern mind. What it really means, practically, is to follow the leadership, the wishes, the inclination of another. And throughout the New Testament, submission is supposed to be the disposition that characterizes all believers. And it's the disposition that actually characterized Christ. So this command to women is not an uncommon command. In the same way that believers are called to love one another, so too believers are also called to submit to one another. You might, okay, Mark, where do you get that from? You might be thinking that. Let me show you. Ephesians 5. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That was a command given to everyone in the context of the book of Ephesians. And then Paul jumps into the application of marriage because he's trying to show an intensified application of a general command to all believers. Even in regards to Christ, look at 1 Corinthians 15. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And also in regards to church leadership, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. So it's just really important from the outset to know that this command to be submissive is not an unusual command. It's not any more uncommon than the command to love. Wives are just called to uniquely apply this in the context of their marriage. It was God's plan for divine function and order. So what does it mean? One author defines it this way, it means the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Again, a calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. So again, God's plan for submission is authority, order, and responsibility. It doesn't mean, women, that you have less value. You're just as much an image bearer as your husband is. You're just as much an image bearer as any other man. It also doesn't mean that you're lesser in talent. Every woman has unique gifts, and husbands and wives, you have to figure out who is going to use their gifts and in what way, even if that kind of goes against the cultural norm a little bit. For example, listen to me, if your wife is a better driver, please let her drive you to church, okay? <laughs> please, get in the passenger seat and say, baby, you got this, all right? 
If your wife is better at managing the checkbook, then brother, give it up, right? Or if you're better at some other sort of role that is typically male-oriented, the reality is you got a way through. Look, who's more gifted at this? And husband, you're still ultimately responsible, but there's lots of things that I yield to my wife, or even in cases where I quote-unquote submit to what she thinks without violating her submission or my leadership. You see, what the Bible is calling here is for a woman to give her husband the gift of submission. Maybe an illustration would help. Uh, Think of marriage like a dance. A dance. Now, no surprise here, I'm not a dancer. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to do the floss, right? My daughter was like, Dad, please, please don't, please don't, please don't. But imagine marriage is like the waltz. Now, in order to know what the waltz was, I had to Google it, literally. I had to Google, what's the waltz? In the waltz, particular steps are required, and it necessitates someone taking the lead. But here's what happens. If you watch a waltz, and if, in that case, in the waltz, the man is taking the lead, it won't be long until, as they're moving, the man sort of fades in the background, and the flowing dress of the woman just sort of takes over. So she's incredibly beautiful and that dance is lovely even though she's not leading and that's the point the point is to do the dance of marriage requires that someone takes the lead the calling is to submit to him your husband as a willing gift with this disposition to follow so when verse 24 says wives should submit in everything to their husbands it simply means that Their oneness is expressed in a way that they do this dance that says something about God and they do it together. And when this happens in a way that honors Christ, marriage is unbelievable. So what do you do if you're a single woman? Hmm. Well, sister, verse 21 applies to you as a Christian. 521 applies to you as a Christian And the only application that you need not yet think about is how it applies in the context of marriage. And I would encourage you, as a godly woman, to think through how your general Christian submission applies in other areas of life. Don't don't make the mistake of thinking that you'll start learning how to submit after you're married. And if a man comes into your life, you need to carefully consider if he's the kind of man with whom you could do the marriage waltz. Some of you are women who are in marriages that are really struggling Some of you are in marriages that are actually dangerous. Let me just speak to you. Sister, you you need to get some help. Tolerating abuse isn't good for you, and it's not helpful to your husband. And there's complications, there's layers. Here's what you need to do. Invite people into the challenge that you're facing. Break the barrier of the silence that's fostered an abusive relationship, and get some people to walk alongside you. What do you do if you're in a marriage and your husband just won't lead? That's a tough one. We don't have all the time in the world to talk through the nuances of that kind of complicated question. Let me just very simply say two things. Number one, the only thing I know to tell you if you're in in a relationship where your husband is not leading is to ask yourself regularly, what is the way that I can love my husband as Christ would want me to love him even in his imperfection and remind yourself that Jesus loved you that way. 
And there's going to be lots of ways that you're going to have to figure that out. And I don't know all of the answers. There's no quick and easy answer. But here's the second thing I would suggest that you do. And that is that you find a godly woman who you can lay out the reality of the situation and say, would you help me know what to do here? And I'm telling you, there's lots of godly women who could give you some great counsel as to how to apply what I'm talking about in the context of a really difficult relationship. The gospel, love, and submission. God designed for those three concepts to make marriage something special. And in so doing, what happens is that marriage has the potential to reveal what God is like. And as a result, marriage can end up platforming the gospel in unique and special ways. Years ago, I read a book called The Disciplines of a Godly Man, and in the context of that book, there's a chapter on marriage using the story of Robert McQuilkin, who was the president of Columbia Bible College, who announced his retirement because of his wife's failing health. Here's what he said in a letter to supporters. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years and so far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Bible College. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time when I'm away from her. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me, so it is clear that she needs me now full time. He writes, perhaps it would help you if I shared with you what I shared at the time of my announcement in chapel, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years, and if I cared for her for the next 40, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is warm lovely, and those occasional flashes of wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her, I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Jesus said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's God's design. We're going to use the Lord's table to have an illustration of what this covenant means. Those of you who are serving us, both the um, general way and also specifically, if you'd come at this time, let me explain to you what we're going to do. We're going to serve communion in the traditional way, meaning people are going to pass the elements out to you as you're seated. And if you're a follower of Jesus... We'd love to have you participate in this memorial event where we literally renew our covenant with Christ. We say, we proclaim your death until you come. But we're also going to have these trays that are going to be held by elders. They're going to be spread out here at the front. And so elders uh, who are taking these trays, go ahead and grab them now and just take your, your spot. And they're going to be available for others of you who, while receiving the elements would be great at one level, I'd like to invite you to take another step. It may be that just God's been speaking to you through this series. It may be that there's a, a point of, uh, of turning, either as a, a single adult or as a married person or as a couple, and it would be good for your soul not to be passive in the receiving of the elements, but to be active. And so what I want you to do while the elements are being distributed out into the sanctuary, for you to go ahead and come, tell the elder why you're coming, 
Let them pray for you and then receive the elements. You may want to come as a couple, maybe individually, whatever it is that, that you want to do. Um, these elders are going to be available to be able to help and serve you. When we distribute the elements, go ahead and take them on your own as we just have a time of meditation and prayer. And let's use this response as a way to say, Jesus, I hear you, I want to be like you, and would you help me? So let's now receive the Lord's table and use these elements to seal the truths in our hearts.